As we continue our worship, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 21. Uh, Genesis chapter 21, if you're visiting with us, feel free to use the, the pew Bible provided. Genesis chapter 21, we'd love for everybody to follow our study this morning in God's Word. It is such a joy to be back, not only here at the church, but here in this very spot at this very time doing this very thing. I was back last week, but we had someone else preaching who did a fantastic job. But quite honestly, I like my job. I like doing this. So it's so good to be back in our study of Genesis And what I think is probably one of the most neglected texts in the entire life of Abraham. And if you think through all the Sunday school flannel graph pictures you've seen in your life in times past, you probably did not have a lesson on this particular incident. And that should excite you, because we believe all of the Bible is God's Word. And we'll look and see exactly what this text is saying to us as we look at verses 22 to 34. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. As frustrating as it may be, parts of us are ever growing and improving, and other parts of us kind of remain the same, or even get worse. This is actually an interesting fact. Just this past week, I was reading a book in which the author claimed that we, our, our bodies, within seven years will totally replace themselves. All of the cells will, that you have right now, supposedly seven years from now, will be totally different. It'll be a new you. It's a really cool fact except for the fact that it's not a fact. (laughs) You know, you hear these things as a preacher, and you're like, before you go say it in front of a couple hundred people, you've got to go do some research. That is not true, friends, (laughs) Uh, as, as neat as it may be. Now, there is a lot of truth to it. I mean, for example, your digestive cells will totally replace themselves every two to five days. Your skin will totally replace itself every two to four weeks. Uh, Your red blood cells every four months. Your liver every two years, your bones every ten years on average, and it gets worse as you get older. Some things change. Some things remain the same. Uh, In fact, they don't just remain the same. They actually just don't improve. They get worse. Like you never get a new one is what I mean. The enamel on your teeth, for example, what you got when you were born is what you have till you die or it wears away. Uh, The same thing is true of much of your brain. That's why Alzheimer's and dementia is such a thing in older age. And another interesting one is your optical lens. 
at the very moment that you were an embryo in your mother's womb, you would have that same optical lens for your entire life and it will only deteriorate from there, thus explaining why as you get older you begin to invest in reading glasses. (laughs) Some things remain the same, some things change. Some parts of us grow and improve, others remain the same or degrade. Not only is this the paradox of the human body, but it's also a paradox of the human self, the soul. This isn't just a physical thing. This is a a metaphysical thing. This is something that is spiritually true of us as well. Every one of us in our lives can see some form of growth or improvement, hopefully on a regular basis. More love than we had several years ago. Less anger. More service. Less sin. More faithfulness or more fervency or more fruitfulness in our walk with Christ. But some things remain naggingly the same. Or at some times, it seems like they actually get worse. We see the impossibility of certain areas, or at least it seems, some nagging sin that just won't go away, some pressure point that seems to always be there, some repeated failure. But what if growth in Christ inevitably included every part of you? What if? How encouraging would it be if it was true? To know that every part of who you are will be gradually, permanently transformed into the glorious image of Christ. That would be really cool. I hope that's a fact. You'll find out for sure it is. It is a normal part of the Christian life. I want to remind you, dear brothers and sisters, from the outset, that whether you feel it or not, if Christ is in you and the Spirit is at work in your heart and life, you are gradually, steadily, increasingly becoming more and more like Christ. The theologian and author Frederick Buechner said it this way, We believe in God. Such as it is, we have faith. We work and goof off, we love and dream, we have wonderful times and awful times, or cruelly hurt and hurt others cruelly, get mad and bored and scared, stiff and ache with desire, do all such human things as these, and if our faith is not mainly just window dressing or rabbit's foot or fire insurance, it is because it grows out of precisely this kind of rich human compost, (laughs) All those disappointments that you experience, all of those frustrations are actually part of that growth process that we can be so frustrated by at times. That that thing that seems to elude us may actually be the way that God is working in us. This is not just true anecdotally, but we see it actually illustrated in the life of Abraham. We've been following Abraham for several weeks now, and we resonate with the frustration of his frequent failures. I mean, we just see him as this, like initially, as this great man of faith. He's stepping out and obeying the Lord. And then, like the next story in Genesis chapter 12 is he cowardly gives his wife away to a Pharaoh because he's trying to preserve his own life. He has these ups and his downs. It's it's like Buchner's rich human compost. Uh, Abraham is not just on a steady chart. He's more like up and down, up and down, two steps forward, one step back. And we found out in the life of Abraham in particular that he has one outstanding weakness. He has several, but he has one outstanding weakness. Do you remember what that is? It's his fear of foreign superpowers. When Abraham finds himself in a situation threatened by some other foreign entity, that's when he typically will exhibit fear, he'll falter in his faith, and then begin to regress. We've seen it happen two times. He is literally struck out with this picture twice. The first time was with Pharaoh in Egypt. The second time happened just a few weeks ago in chapter 20 of Genesis. You remember it. 
with Abimelech. This guy Abimelech that we just read about. Abraham's moving into his land and he once again tells his wife, look, just just say you're my sister, everything's going to work out okay, let's just be dishonest with this guy so we can live. But here, in this text, all of the sudden, something has changed. Something is radically different. Here he is facing the same picture for the third time, And he will literally knock it out of the park. And the question that we're asking ourselves is, what in the world is the difference? How is it that Abraham fails so miserably the first two times when confronted with this scenario, and now, all of a sudden, seems to be the man of faith that we thought he was in Sunday school? That's what we want to look for as we study this text. The narrator writes because he wants us to consider the secret of Abraham's success. What is it in Abraham that uncovers this secret to to growth and spiritual greatness? How does he go from the man of faltering faith to the man of full and confident faith? Well, we'll trace this through the three movements of this story. We'll see the, the recognition of greatness in verses 22 to 24. There's a recognition of greatness. Then there'll be a demonstration of greatness by Abraham in verses 25 to 32. But it's going to be in verses 33 to 34 that we see the explanation of greatness. We'll get there. But let's take it in turn. The first movement. The recognition of greatness by Abimelech. He's the one that notices it. And you can remind yourself of it in verse 22. Look at it again one more time in the text. At that time, Abimelech... And Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Now there's very few words here. We only have two verses. But these two verses are saying a lot. Around the time of the events that have just recently transpired, the the weaning of Isaac, presumably, Abraham is still in the southern part of the promised land called Gerar. He's camping out. He doesn't own any property here yet. He's sojourning. And it says that the commander, the leader of this particular area, the king, Abimelech, approaches Abraham, and it's interesting, He doesn't just approach Abraham by himself, but he brings with him his hitman. He brings with him Phicol, the commander of his armies. Now, this is a rather intimidating prospect. In times past, we only see Abraham interacting with the political leader. Here, the text includes for us a note on two separate occasions that Abimelech has come with his muscle. He has come with his military commander. He is going to try to persuade Abraham to show him some favor. But my, how the tables have turned. Because now, I mean, in the past where we've seen Abraham being the one who is afraid of the foreign power, now it is the foreign power who himself is afraid of Abraham. And notice how this foreign power, Abimelech, this king and his commander, recognize Abraham's greatness. They say to him, God is with you in all that you do. They they recognize that this man has a special relationship with God. And our preacher last week did such an effective job of reminding us of what it means that God is with us. Of course we know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is with everyone. But when the biblical text states that God is with us, it is not talking about his presence of location. It is talking about his presence of validation. In this place... God has shown up in Abraham's life in such a unique way that he has validated him through blessing and empowering his efforts. And this foreign commander, watching Abraham from a distance, has noticed this about him. He, he is speaking it out of his own lips. He says, God is with you in all that you do, not just some of it, but this man has a special relationship with God. We now see him as someone who has power with God Almighty. But notice, he doesn't just take exclaim Abraham's greatness through a statement, but he also shows it through a request. Not just a a statement, but a request. Notice, this king, this powerful man, comes to Abraham begging, no, even demanding for his favor. Look at verse 23. Now therefore, swear to me here by God. You notice the urgency in it. 
you will not deal falsely with me. Paul's there. You remember what happened last time Abraham dealt falsely with him. When Abraham had lied to him, it brought upon him plagues. I mean, his entire harem, his entire family, no one for months could produce any children. And he himself had even experienced a disease to some degree that he could not even consummate the marriage relationship with Sarah. So this man has already suffered at the hand of Abraham when he lied to him before. He knows, he says, look, please don't do that to me again. Don't deal falsely, but as I have dealt kindly with you, as I have let you live on my land, and as I have given you gifts in times past, so you will deal with me. He's, he's so urgent with it, and with the land where you have sojourned. He says, I, I want you to show me some kindness. And notice this, he doesn't just want the kindness for himself. He thinks so highly of Abraham that he wants this kindness to go from him to his children to his children's children. He recognizes this isn't just some local shaman. This isn't a local witch doctor. This guy has some type of power that transcends generations. He's a powerful man. When the king is begging for this type of favor for his kids and his grandkids, something has changed. Something dramatically has changed. And so, Abraham, unapologetically, almost stoically, responds with three little words. I will swear. There's no humility in this at all. It's just a simple, terse response like, yeah, you're right. I'll do it, sure. (laughs) This is a different Abraham. There is something impressive here. But I want you to know that this newfound greatness in Abraham is not merely recognized by Abimelech, but it's also demonstrated by Abraham. It's not just recognized. We see that in verses 22 to 24, but it's also demonstrated. Look in verses 25 to 32. Well, in fact, let's just read verses 25 and 26. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. Now, this is an interesting little note. The, the ESV has it when Abraham approved it. Just in the Hebrew, it's a disjunctive kind of clause that's letting you know, like, hey, here's a little extra note that you need to know about this transaction that took place. Basically, while Abraham and Abimelech are sitting at the negotiation table, I'm going to put this in 21st century terminology for a moment, Abraham decides before he signs the contract, oh yeah, by the way, there's that issue about the well. I dug a well, and your servants had actually came and seized the well. Now, for those of us who are living in a 21st century context, we're thinking, oh, a well. He should have just gone to Walmart and bought some more water if he was really thirsty. But friends, you remember what it was like with the hurricane a few years ago to have scarce access to water? (laughs) This is the way they lived every day. And so a well was an expensive endeavor and a valuable one. It was expensive because, A, you had to know where to dig. You didn't have anything to dig with except for a shovel. Sometimes in that area in particular, you would have to penetrate bedrock and go meters into the ground. How many of you have ever dug a hole before? I'm not talking like a little post hole like to dig a fence. I'm talking like a a legit hole. I remember I was, you've dug a hole, Gabriel? I don't think you have. (laughs) I remember when I was about Gabriel's age, some friends of mine, we actually went, I don't know why we did this, but we went to a field and we were going to do this experiment because it was told that if you dig a hole uh, and then try to fill it back in, you can't fill it back in the same way because the moon changes like the amount of dirt or something. So we wanted to prove this thing wrong. And uh, we dug and we we dug a hole about six foot deep in the middle of a field. Poor farmer. (laughs) He was wondering what was going on. 
And then we feel, but I remember that was like one of the hardest days of work in my life. This is an expensive endeavor. This was something major that had taken place. Don't dismiss, oh, they had a little dispute over a well. This was a major financial transaction that had taken place. And for Abraham, a man who had hundreds of people working in his operation, this would have taken, dealt a serious blow to his business, to his bottom line. If he wasn't able to get these resources out to the cattle that he was raising and to the people that he was trying to provide for, this was going to be a major issue. And here's the deal, though. This is what you've got to get. Abraham doesn't own this property. He is living by the good and kind hand of Abimelech for free on this dude's land. But notice what he does at the negotiation table. He says, oh, by the way, I know you're a powerful ruler and everything, and that I'm actually living on your spot, but I want you to know that you've wronged me because your guys have taken a well that I have dug. There's some boldness here to Abraham that we haven't seen before. And interestingly, they move on with the agreement. Abimelech obviously acknowledges the wrong, and notice how apologetic Abimelech is. He's like, oh, I, I, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. I've not heard of it until today. He's like making excuses. He's backtracking. He's the one that's on his heels in the negotiation. And so, verse 27, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Now, this is extremely interesting. Historians, archaeologists, people familiar with that culture and the history of the day recognize that in this transition, with transaction, with the language, with the exchanging of these herds of animals, what is actually taking place here isn't just a spit and a handshake. But this is a formal international treaty. It's called a parity covenant. It, this isn't what you did interpersonally. This is what you did internationally, from state to state. What is happening here is that this one foreign superpower is now treating Abraham as a foreign superpower. They are entering into an official agreement with one another. Abraham has risen in greatness. With this agreement, Abraham has moved from a no-name, pagan, idol-worshipping city dweller from Ur to a semi-nomadic Bedouin of fledgling faith roaming about Canaan, to a land-owning, God-representing, internationally recognized superpower. Our Abraham has changed. (laughs) The little Abraham we knew of times past has finally grown into a man. The promise that God had made from the very beginning is coming into fulfillment. Notice this, though. Abraham doesn't just enter into the agreement. He's going to get back to this well and these land rights. Look at verses 28 to 31. Abraham continues, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. Now, these seven ewe lambs, there's this young female sheep. They're very valuable, more valuable than the males because females lead to more sheep. And they could also provide milk. So, in addition to this first gift of the livestock as a sign of good faith, Abraham brings out another seven animals, very valuable. And then, naturally, Abimelech's wondering what's going on here because he thought that they were just entering into one agreement, but <laughs> Abraham makes it two. Abimelech said to Abraham in verse 29, look there, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? What are, what are you doing? Verse 30, he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. He's not giving up on it. They're not entering into a peace treaty without Abraham getting this well that he originally wanted from the very beginning. And so Abraham minces no words. He shows no fear. He's saying, you must do this. And it is like you telling your landlord that you are building a shed out back and you don't care what he thinks about it. Who cares if it's his property? You will build the shed. Abraham is being very bold. He has no fear. And something is different here. Something has changed in Abraham. And notice what takes place. Verse 31, there's the summary. Therefore, 
that place was called Beersheba. Beer in the Bible, exactly what you're thinking of, beer, not the drink today, but that word beer means well. Sheba is the Hebrew word for seven. So the well of seven, the well of the seven lambs. It would be forever known as this because there both of them swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. You see what's happening here? What's fascinating to me that it is at this very point that Abraham will now be recognized, I want you to catch this, as a landowner in the promised land. He's always been a sojourner. He's always been considered an alien. And now this place, Beersheba, is under his control. It is under his ownership and hidden, hidden for us. After the promise of Isaac and and the promise of the son is now the promise of the land being fulfilled, at least in a small way, because from time Now till future, Israel would look back to this moment and recognize that here Abraham began to own the land. There is a common phrase in Israel, you'll find it in the book of Samuel, when they're talking about the borders of the promised land, they'll say something like, and that happened all the way from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northern extent of Israel. Beersheba was considered to be the southern extent of Israel. And so here, Abraham has entered into this agreement, and he not only has the son that God had promised him in times past, but now he is beginning to own the land as well. This is a huge, major development. What's happening here is massive. Notice that last phrase in verse 32. Then Abimelech, he's reminding us that the king... And the military leader, Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned, this is an interesting note, to the Philistines. To the Philistines. Friends, I would encourage you when you're reading your Bibles and you see a little detail like that to ask yourself, why would this be here? I think the narrator wants us to remember who Abraham's dealing with. These were the progenitors of the Philistines, those fierce warriors who would always wage war against Israel in the future. Like These are their descendants. Abraham, let me, and just please pardon the, the betting metaphor here, but this is no chump change. Abraham is playing with the big boys. This is a major transaction. You know, it's quite one thing for your startup to land a contract with the local IT company. It's quite another for your small startup to land a contract with Apple or Microsoft. You know, it's one thing for your favorite football team to play East Tennessee State or Fordham University. Sorry if you're a fan. It's quite another for them to play Clemson or Alabama. Abraham is on the world scene with this transaction. And listen to this. The promise of God initially made at the outset in Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 and 3 has come to pass Listen to it. You can turn there if you want. God said at the initial introduction of Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God was determined to do something great with Abraham, and he would do something great with Abraham. And friends, this should be an encouraging reminder for us all. God has made promises not only to His chosen one Abraham, but to all of His chosen in Christ Jesus that He will make them into the perfect and glorious image of Jesus Christ. When it seems like that growth isn't happening in the way that you want it to, or where you don't see as much improvement in the way that you long, you can remind yourself that the eternal God always fulfills His promises. 
through all the faults and through all the failures and through all the backtracking, in the end, God will accomplish His plan for His people as a whole and for you as an individual. Paul reminds the Philippians of it this way. He says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the end. Or maybe it'd be good for us to turn to Romans 8 quickly. I'd like for your eyes to land on this verse. Romans chapter 8. That that famous, famous passage. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. And you'll be encouraged to see this again and be reminded of it even this week in your own struggles. The Apostle reminds us, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, the question is, friends, uh, what is this good? What What does He mean by good? He's going to define it. Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew in eternity past, He also predestined to be, He predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, He's going to make them just like Jesus. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It talks of our future glorification, our future perfection in Christ Jesus as an already accomplished fact. It doesn't say He will be glorified one day. It says glorified, like past tense, like it's already happened. It's a certainty. There's no doubt whatsoever that God is accomplishing His plan for our spiritual greatness. You know, what's happening here is interesting because Abraham may not be able to see his growth, but those of us who are looking at things from the outside can. This is a normal human experience, by the way. I don't know about you, but I grew up regularly being forced to go to family reunions. They seem to be like on the decline. But I remember this every two to three years showing up to that one place and being like shown off to all of these people that I don't know and that I'm supposedly related to. Maybe you're older and you've had the experience of actually enjoying those events as opposed to the kids who tend to endure them. Not sure, but... There's a common thing that happens there. If you've been to a few of them, you've seen it happen. That gangly and awkward adolescent girl, all of a sudden, a few years later, becomes this gorgeous, elegant young woman. The the puny, pugnacious little boy that used to run around under the tables, all of a sudden is this strong and confident college graduate. The parents have a hard time seeing this. They're there, they're in the weeds, it's so gradual, it's so small, it's so imperceptible, but here's the deal, friends. The change is real. Living things grow. And if you today possess the life of Jesus Christ, you are growing. God is making you into exactly who He wants you to be. Here, our little Abraham is all grown up. He's coming to His own. He's not a spiritual boy, but a man. And so also with us, we are growing. So despite our failures and our trials, or even in our successes, we need to remember, He is working. Philippians reminds us of this. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God is at work in you, friend. Can I give you a practical challenge that may encourage you or convict you? It's a little bit of a dare. You don't have to sign a contract, but I encourage you to get it done this week. Ask one person this week who knows you well and that loves Jesus What, if any, spiritual growth have you seen in me? What, if any, spiritual growth have you seen in me? I would think 
that for the truly converted, the real believer, that the true child of God, the spiritual, godly, loving person that you've asked would be able to encourage you in that. It won't puff you up. You'll be reminded that it was God who did it in the first place. But hear me well, this knife cuts both ways. If you ask and have the boldness to ask, a godly, loving, kind individual who is close to you, what spiritual growth have you seen in me? And they cannot honestly answer. You have cause to question whether or not you've really been born again. Living things grow. I pray it would encourage the right. I pray that it would challenge the rebellious. And I want you to know, friends, that as a church family, it is our desire to ask that question of you often. Every two weeks, the pastors of this church, that includes elders, they're all the same, get together and we walk through that membership directory a few names at a time and we are asking this question, how are they growing in the Lord? And by the way, if we fear that someone isn't growing in the Lord, we'll talk to you about it. But that's what a church is. It isn't just a kick in the backside to like do better, but it's also an encouragement in the ways that we have developed. And I could just say pastorally that by and large, those are very encouraging conversations up there in that room because we are seeing this growth. I mean, and the great thing, it's not every person every time. Some names don't come up for every few months and we're like, oh wow, remember where they were last year at this time? See where they are now? God is at work in His people and you should be able to find joy in that. Don't be afraid of that question. Living things grow. And so God is at work. He's at work among us. He is at work in us. He is with us. So here's the question, though. We're, we're getting to the end of this. What has brought about Abraham's greatness? Something has changed, right? That's clear. But do we have any hints in the text as to the difference between Abraham and Genesis chapter 22 and the difference in Abraham and Genesis chapter 20 and before? Let's turn from this demonstration of greatness to the explanation of greatness in verses 33 to 34. The only hint that we have is in these last two verses. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now, this is interesting. Abraham really stakes his claim at this point. By planting this tree, he is indicating to all who lived in the area that he, he owns this property. Uh, he was going to provide a place of shade very practically, but also we see trees being used throughout the Old Testament to, as a memorial to God's goodness and faithfulness. Abraham is celebrating the win, if you will. But that's not the emphasis of the text. The narrator just mentions the tamarisk tree, this, this evergreen that would grow 10 to 30 feet tall in that environment. And it quickly moves on. You could tell what the real focal point of the passage is. Is Abraham worshiping God. Abraham calling on the name of the Lord. That's just Old Testament shorthand for worship. And so the, the question would be this. Uh, he worships Yahweh. He worships the Lord. But for what does he worship him? See, the text could have just said that he worships the Lord and move on. But it is here that we will be exposed to a name of God that is yet to be revealed to us in Scripture. This is the first time that this name will ever be used. And you see it there. It's great translation. The everlasting God. How does Abraham, how is he moved to praise God? He's moved to praise him at this point for his eternality. The fact that, that God is unlimited. He doesn't expire. He, he doesn't diminish. The eternal God is keeping His eternal promises. That, that, that promise that He would make for land, He kept. That promise that He would make for seed, He kept. Th this God never expires. He, he never grows weary. He is truly everlasting. One of my favorite candies as a kid was an everlasting gobstopper which, if I remember correctly, lasts about three minutes. We have all kinds of guarantees. Lifetime warranty. 
forever. My dad and I, we used to love uh, to, to buy tools from Sears because they sold Craftsman. And Craftsman had a lifetime warranty. Did you know that they've retracted their lifetime warranty? <laughs> Permanence is hard for mere mortals. And yet here, we're, Abraham is acknowledging that, that the God that he serves isn't just some meager, limited, pagan deity, but this is the eternal God of all creation. The, the secret to Abraham's greatness, humanly speaking, is that he is finally beginning to learn how powerful his God really is. This is so essential for your continued growth. Yes, God will continue to grow you. It is up to Him. But humanly speaking, your growth happens as you continue to think deeply about your God and how He is at work. They that know their God, Jeremiah says, shall be strong and do exploits. The knowledge of God is, it is such a, a practical and real thing. It is something that we must know intellectually and then implement practically. And I want to be able to help you with this. For those of you who are up for the challenge, I invite you to swim with me in the deep end of the theological pool for a few moments. Let us dwell momentarily for what it means for God to be eternal. It means that He is without limit, without end. One has has said it this way, that he, He never expires or diminishes. There's always more to Him. In fact, this is such a foundational understanding of God that the Westminster Assembly, this this group of of godly men in in the 1600s, they they got together and they tried to take everything from the Bible and summarize it so that the, the churches would have neat and organized categories by which to think through doctrine and duty. So they, they made this, this definition of God that's two paragraphs long. I, I wouldn't even try to read it to you today. And it's, it's magisterial. It's an amazing definition. But here's what's cool about the dudes at Westminster. They realized that they not only needed to teach this to adults, but that they also needed to teach it to their kids. So they took all this theology, and then they turned it into a curriculum for their children, and they called it a catechism, particularly the shorter catechism. Question number four of the Shorter Catechism, question number four of what they think every child, not just adult, every child should know about God. Here it is, the question. What is God? What is God? Answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In His being, Goodness, truth, power, and wisdom. The basic fact that every little kid would need to know about God is that He is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Friends, you don't think through that. I don't think through that very often. In fact, Charles Hodge, another famous systematic theologian of the century, said that that definition of God is the best definition of God ever penned by a human man outside of the Bible. I tend to agree. So fundamental to your spiritual development is understanding that the God that you serve has no limits whatsoever. It is actually in those moments of limitation and frustration and failure and weakness that you then can begin to understand that He is truly the infinite one. He is the one that possesses eternality alone. Our limitations should drive us to think about His unlimited nature. Our weakness should provoke us to consider His strength. Abraham has seen his faults. He has seen his failures. He knows that the things that God has promised to do with him are eternal and they're huge and they're so much bigger than he himself would ever be able to realize and yet they would be realized because he served Yahweh, the eternal one. The eternal God. 
Friends, this is very practical for you because you don't just need to intellectualize it, but you need to actualize it. You need to translate this into practice. Say, what would it look like? Well, I'll give you some examples. As a finite creature faced with a seemingly infinite number of tasks and trials and challenges, you will regularly need to lean in, depend on, and cling to the eternality of God. Let me give you a few examples. One is when you're sensing your own limitation. You ever, you're ever there? Anybody ever feel like you've got more to do than you actually can do? Like, I mean, and I'm not just talking about because you're, you're obsessive, compulsive, and like you're, you know, you're trying to like make a name for yourself. I'm talking about people who are faithfully loving Jesus thinking, man, I need to represent Christ well in my family, and I have a lot to do in like representing Christ to my non-safe family as well, and then I've got neighbors in the community, and then I've got my responsibilities at work, and then I'm trying to serve at church, and, and then I want to have a, a greater impact like with our neighbors. We don't know them that well. I mean, I'm talking like people who really mean well, loving Jesus, and just thinking, I can't do all this. I am limited. You're in the right spot. When the Israelites were facing a similar circumstance, when they were overwhelmed by the number of enemies that surrounded them before they entered the promised land, Moses would write this psalm. It would end up in the Psalter, Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, your God. Lord, you're the everlasting God, I am not. Lord, you are the one who can fulfill these obligations, I cannot. It's not just when you're limited, but it's also when you're suffering from lethargy. When you do a great just study of how God's eternality is used in the Bible, there are particular instances in which God's people grow weary. Anybody weary? And I'm not just talking about because it's a rainy Sunday morning. I'm talking about like, you know what it's like to be emotionally exhausted. Some of us in recent weeks have not enjoyed summer vacation. We have endured it. And so we are looking for some help. We are looking for some relief. And hear this word from the Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It was in those moments of limitation that they were to rest in the fact that he himself had all strength. What about this? When life seems unfair, anybody feel like they've been wronged acutely in days past? Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The one who inhabits eternity knows that you've been wronged and he will take care of it in his time. In his eternal time, not on your little watch, but on his eternal time, he will take care of it. The one who inhabits eternity knows that he will dwell in a special way with the lowly and the humble of heart. When things seem out of control, your world seem out of control. Psalm 93, 2. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. When it seems like he won't return. I mean, I'm, I read last night of the news of what happened in Texas, and I am so tired of those things. That's why I said in the pastoral prayer this morning, God, we hate this. And you know what? I was just doing further research. That wasn't the only major shooting this week. You had another one in California a few days earlier. The world is a mess. It is a mess. It seems out of control. It seems like he needs to return. And yet Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13, and also Revelation 1-8 will remind us, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. And notice this. Notice what he reminds you of here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All of us could easily look back and say, God, you had a great start. But right here in the middle, I'm not seeing much good happening. Guess what, friends? He is not just the beginning. He is the end. He knows how to finish the book. When the fight of faith is hard. You know what it's like to keep battling against the same sin? Once again, we're reminded of the eternality of God. We read it in our text for scripture reading today, 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16. The Lord Jesus Christ 
And God the Father is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You remember His greatness. So the question for us is this. How then do we explain Abraham's greatness? What is our only hope for the hard times that are still to come? It is conscious dependence upon and celebration of the eternal God. If you were to go online and look for uh, popular Spanish coins from uh, the, the 15th century, you would find something extremely fascinating that Originally, Spanish currency included on the back these two columns. And on the columns, on the, on the, right in the middle of the coin, uh, were, were these words, neck plus ultra. Neck plus ultra. It meant nothing more beyond. Nothing more beyond. Uh, Spain had the audacity to actually claim that they were the end of the world. At that particular time, Spain not only owned the territory where they are currently, but they also own Morocco. So if you know your geography well, the Mediterranean Sea is kind of enclosed and you've got the Strait of Gibraltar. Well, there's a high mountain in Morocco, there's a high mountain in uh, Spain, and they call those the Pillars of Hercules. Legend has it that Hercules like plowed a hole right through the middle of it, and those were the pillars that he erected. So anyway, anytime somebody was leaving the Mediterranean Ocean, they were going to be reminded through these coins and through inscriptions on the side of of that little strait that you're at the end. There's nothing more. There's nothing more. And then Christopher Columbus came along. (laughs) From Spain, as a matter of fact. And they had to remit all their currency. They used the same pillars, but they changed it to this. Plus ultra. Plus ultra, more beyond, more beyond. There was that paradigm shift where they finally understood that there was so much more than they could possibly imagine. Friends, in whatever trial, temptation, or discouragement, it would be so easy for you to fall back into the normal thinking, neck plus ultra, no more beyond, no more beyond. Nothing else can happen. This is the end. I have reached the limit. But one has gone beyond. One has already shown us <laughs> that there is more. Someone who would come in, in, in human form as, as an actual man, he, he would come and live the existence that you live. The pressures and temptations and trials that you face and that I face, he faced. And guess what? He overcame them. He overcame them perfectly. Unlike Abraham who faltered and failed, Jesus never did two steps forward, one step back. It was always step forward after step forward after step forward all the way up to the cross itself. And why would someone so perfect then go to a cross and die? Because in His perfection, He would take on our failure and our imperfections and satisfy God's rightful wrath over our sin. He would bring it upon Himself. He would pay the death penalty that we deserved. And then three days later, showing His power over all these things and that the payment had been fully paid, He would rise again, reminding us all, there's more beyond. There's more beyond. The unlimited is possible. It has been made possible for us graciously in Christ. Abraham could only look forward to it, but he still enjoyed the progress. But we still here today look back to something that's already been done and we recognize that God will have His way in the end. He will conform me perfectly into that perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have hope no matter what it is that we're facing despite our limitations. We are confined to 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 and a fourth days a year. We, we exist in time, but we know someone who exists outside of it, and no matter how many things He's called us to, they will be accomplished. 
And where does this greatness come? It comes through a relationship with God provided by the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ by means of the enablement of the Holy Spirit. We have this. We've got this. Or more exactly, God has this through us. And so we close our service out this morning with a reminder of more beyond. We look back today as a congregation to what Christ has accomplished, the impossible that He accomplished on our behalf through His death and His resurrection. And we celebrate that and we remember that once more so that we can face the week with full confidence in whatever trials may come. We call it communion. We call it the Lord's table. It could be one or either of the things. I will dismiss our ushers in just a moment for this. But for now, I want you to be able to prepare your heart adequately for this time of reflection of the provision of the eternal God. 1 Corinthians 11 solemnly charges us to examine ourselves before partaking of this memorial meal. And particularly, we examine ourselves looking for three things. The first is this. Am I united to Christ? Should I partake of this meal or not? Ask yourself this question. Am I united to Christ? Have I repented of my sin and placed my faith in Jesus Christ? This meal portrays fellowship and oneness with Christ. Secondly, am I united to the body of Christ? Well, listen, friends. If question number one is true of you, question number two will be as well. To be connected to Christ as the head of the church necessitates that we belong to His body, which is represented by local churches just like this one. So this would include you being a part of this church or a part of another church where the same gospel you've heard here is also preached. If you're encouraged to partake at your gospel preaching church, then you are encouraged to participate with us here. But listen to this. I say this solemnly. If you've been excommunicated from that church, or they have refused to baptize you for some reason or another, please let the plate pass you by and use this as a time of reflection. Third, Am I pursuing unity within the body of Christ? Our oneness with Christ is evidenced by our oneness with His people. Paul's greatest concern in 1 Corinthians 11 is partaking of the meal in an unworthy way. Listen, friends, we're all unworthy. We're all unworthy. That's why we need the reminder of this meal. But only few of us will partake in an unworthy way. And how is that? It is to be in conflict with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Matthew 5 makes it clear. You need to make it right with another believer first before participating in public forms of worship like this. So you need to ask yourself, are are things right between you and other believers? If you're harboring some unrepentant sin toward another, you're not showing true evidence of conversion. Please do not, as Paul would say, drink judgment on yourself. So if you're not sure whether or not you should partake, don't feel any embarrassment. We're not going to ask you to come forward. Uh, We're going to let the elements be brought to you. And so as the plate is passed along, you can just let it pass you by and use this as a time of prayer and reflection. So at this point, I'll dismiss our ushers to prepare to serve us the bread and the cup. And let us now prepare our own hearts, confessing any known sin to the Lord, selfishness, pride, disunity, whatever it may be, maybe even a lack of faith in the eternal God, I'll give you a few moments to pray silently, and then I'll close our time of preparation with public prayer, thanking God for his pardon and the meal to come. Let's pray silently. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your gracious work in Christ, there is no health in us. So have mercy on us, O Lord. Forgive all who confess their faults. Restore all who truly repent according to your promises 
declared in Christ Jesus our Lord. For despite our human failure and limitations, we rejoice in that promise of 1 John 1.9. That indeed, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, you, the eternal God, have made it all right through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and connected us to Him by faith. So we thank you for forgiving us, for uniting us into your one body and the unity of the faith. Thank you for the kindness in which you have delivered your only begotten Son to death for our sins. Allow us to fulfill your command to partake of this meal in remembrance of you in such a way that we may not by any false pretense offend or provoke you. In Jesus' name, amen.